Welcome to our Bible study, our Wednesday evening Bible study. We're going to continue and actually conclude chapter 7. So last week our emphasis <clears throat> was on the first eight verses in Revelation chapter 7. So tonight we'll be covering verses 9 through the end of the chapter. So let me read those verses and then we'll go back and, and look at some specific things. Beginning in verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and praise and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen then one of the elders addressed me saying who are those who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I think it would be safe and accurate to say that in the first eight verses of chapter 7, the question that is raised at the end of chapter 6 is being answered. The question that is raised <clears throat> is who will be able to stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? And this is answered in the first eight verses with a summary and a symbolic portrayal of the spiritual Israel, which is in essence the entire church. But it is, you, it is the church in those first eight verses is portrayed in the symbolic number of 144,000 and they are portrayed or described as being the nation or the, the tribes of Israel and as we pointed out last week with Judah being at the head of the list and the lamb being from the tribe of Judah, this is indeed the new Jerusalem. So these 144,000 are a symbolic representation of the whole body of Christ. They are the ones who have been sealed by uh, God and um, they are set apart and, and really portrayed, we'll see later in, in some of the upcoming chapters, they are portrayed almost in battle formation. 
Now, in the bottom part of this chapter, which is the second vision that, the, that's, uh, that constitutes the chapter, in this particular vision, John sees the people of God from a different vantage point. Now, one could say that in the first eight verses, with the symbolism of the 144,000, we are given a macro vision, in other words, a broad vision of the church in symbolic terms. In verses 9 through the end, we get a microcosm of the church. So we get a, a deeper, more intense look at the church, and they're not just seen broadly as 144,000 sealed, but in the verses that follow, they are presented with greater detail. But in either case, we're still talking about uh, the people of God. Now, we're not going to follow verse by verse from verse 9 all the way through the end, but I want to give, uh, there are five things that we'll look at that uh, make up the heart of the, the bottom or the second vision in uh, chapter 7. The first thing that we'll note is the numerical contrast from the top part with the macro vision, the bigger vision of the church, and the, the, the symbolism of the 144,000 is contrasted in verse 9 with the number, a multitude that is without number. Okay? So in verses 1 through 8, and especially in verses um, 5, or uh, beginning actually in verse 4 through 8, where the numbers are broken down, that is a symbolic overarching picture of the body of Christ. But here, the contrast is very clear. In verse 9, we are told this is a number that no one could number. And that's why it was important for us to point out last week that the order in which those visions occur are not necessarily the order of things because ultimately what we're seeing in both of these visions is a vision of the consummation. This is God's people in victory. And so the contrast is, is, is stark. 144,000 verses in innumerable number, those, those that can't be counted, but we're still talking about the same people. The second thing to note, which is also taken from verse 9, is the diversity. Because it would be easy, and one of the, um, one of the interpretations of the 144,000 that we discussed last week is that some people see that as a remnant of the, the nation of Israel or ethnic Jews that would be saved during the tribulation period, assuming that the church is raptured away. That's part of dispensational thinking. We don't subscribe to dispensational theology, so therefore we don't believe that the church will be secretly raptured away, and that's going to be fleshed out by what we see here uh, later in, in, in this portion. But the point being is what, what is described in the first vision, even though it uses the language of Israel, is the inclusion of all who have been sealed by the Lamb. So it's not just ethnic Jews. Well, that point of diversity is really amplified in the second vision because that number that couldn't be numbered is, is presented in verse 9 as being a group from all tribes, all peoples, all 
languages, all nations. Now, this international flavor of uh, the people of God actually corresponds to two things of, of importance. The first thing that it corresponds to is the Great Commission itself. And then the second thing is uh, Paul's description of the church in a number of places, but especially I want to be looking at, I'm going to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. But let's begin with the Great Commission, because this number that is so great that no one could number is said to be from all tribes, all nations, all languages. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now hold in mind, that is actually the beginning of the Great Commission. This corresponds nicely with the vision of the Lamb who has the authority to open the seals. So there is a direct connection here. The Jesus who has been given, and, and by the way, in Matthew 28, where this Great Commission is recorded, this is after the resurrection. So it's the resurrected Christ who has been raised from the grave who says all authority has been given to him. It is the Lamb who has the authority to break the seals and to reveal the will of God to the people of God as they are suffering. So there is definitely a connection. But Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So what is portrayed here in Revelation 7 at the end of redemptive history is the church of Christ has done exactly what he has said. We have gone into the uttermost parts of the world and we have made disciples from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. But look at the way Paul describes the church or as he refers to it as the new humanity in Ephesians chapter 2 and I'll read verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, he, uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, really, much of what is addressed there by Paul in Ephesians is played out here. It's, it's portrayed here with the people of God in worship. So here's what we've seen so far. Two main issues as it relates to the bottom part of the, or the, the, the second vision in chapter 7. We see the contrast in the numbers. The first vision, in a macro way, the church is defined or described symbolically as consisting of 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. But in the second vision, in a micro view, looking at all of the particles that make up that 144,000, we see that instead of it being 144,000, it's really, really a number that is too great to number. And those constituent parts are made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Because in Christ Jesus, under the banner of the tribe of Judah, through the Lamb, we are all reconciled to God through Christ, and we become one body. So even though now that one body of Christ is intentionally diverse, um, I should point out here because um, there's, as we speak, there's a lot of social unrest going on about uh, divisions within our culture, and these divisions are a result of the fall. The church is not the culture, and the church, the church is itself the new humanity. And in the new humanity, it's not that we don't have ethnic and racial differences, but those differences are, are sanctified in the cross. So that one of the things that's, that's irritating to me is when people say, well, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. Well, that's not true, um, because we shouldn't be colorblind, but we, shouldn't, we also shouldn't be culture blind, so that we are not colorblind, so that we do see differences, but we don't make differences because of the externals that we see. What happens is that as each one is brought to the cross, we see ourselves and we are to see one another through the reality of who we are in Christ. At the end of Galatians, Paul says this, God forbid that I should boast except through the cross of Christ, because in or except for in the cross of Christ, because by his cross I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we are to bring every thought and every careless word into captivity, and it is to be brought into submission through Christ. So therefore, it's not that there are not black-white differences. It's not, there's, it's, it's not a matter of we, you stop being Asian or you stop being uh, Latino or you stop being African-American. No, we, all of that are, those are our identifiers. That is who God made us. But all of us are in Adam. And what we have to do is to be crucified. The first Adam has to be crucified in the cross of the last Adam. 
so that we can now address one another as first neighbors, which means image bearers of God. And all human beings are image bearers of God and are to be treated equally as image bearers of God. But those of us who have been brought to a saving knowledge of Christ, we're not just neighbors. We are one body in Christ. And the reason I, I, I pause here is because sometimes um, in moments of cultural crisis, we try to force what comes natural. So now because people are marching and, and it's for a just cause, but now because people in the culture are dealing with these racial issues, now all of a sudden the, the black church on this side of town wants to show that we are one in Christ so they will go across town to this Anglo church and show that we are one. That's cute and all, but it's, it's, it's really superficial. Because, uh, and, and I've even heard people say, well, we have to intentionally plant um, diverse churches. No, we plant churches. And people are drawn to the churches, hopefully, because of the message of the, cro of the cross hopefully because of Christ, so that we're not trying to make our church black or white. But here's the challenge. When we stand in the name of Christ and we preach and we worship as the people, as the body of Christ, then our worship should be comfortable for whoever finds comfort in the cross. In other words, if the, the, the makeup, if the ethnic makeup of your church is dominant in one way or the other, we have to be mindful that those cultural things that are endemic to that dominant culture of that particular congregation do not overshadow the commonality that we have in the cross. So we're not trying to preserve the legacy of the black church we shouldn't be trying to celebrate the legacy of the white church, the Anglo church, or, or the Korean church, or any other hyphenated thing that we put onto our congregation. What should be celebrated is what we have in Christ, what we have in common in Christ. So when it says that the church is made up of this diversity, that is the reality. We may not always see it in, the, in any one local congregation. But the reality is that wherever people call on the name of Christ, we are one. We are one with them. So it may not be reflected in every congregation, but this diversity is true of the body. And if this is true of the universal body of Christ, then that means in any given part of that body, we have to celebrate the diversity, even as we don't see it, so that those who are within the confines of our local fellowship are not dismissive of those who don't make up a part of our local congregation, that we don't see ourselves as being in A, in competition with another body, or that we are better than them, or they are less than us, but we are one in Christ. The one body of Christ is made up of people from different tribes, tongues, languages. So everybody's not going to look the same, but we are still clinging to the same 
sacrificed lamb, and that's what gives us our identity. There's a healthy little book that a friend of mine wrote a number of years ago, Lutheran brother, Don Matson, and I would strongly recommend it. It's called Christ Esteem. And one of the things that Don makes mention of early on is how he used to identify himself. And at the time, he was living in New York City. And he said if you asked him, he would identify himself, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says I would identify myself as um, a, a New York City, a resident of New York City, white Anglo male who lives in uh, New York City of German descent and a member of the Lutheran Church. And he realized that all of those things that he put before his union with Christ, it's not that you stop living in New York. You don't lose your German descent if you're in Christ. But if you're in Christ, all of those other secondary parts of your experience has to be filtered through your knowledge of being or through your, your union with Christ. You can't be more German than you are Christian. You can't be more Cuban or Mexican or African American than you are in Christ. The fact that you are in Christ means that all of those other layers are to be defined and filtered through your union with Christ. That's the beauty of the church. You don't have to stop being um, what you are ethnically, but you have to stop being what you are in Adam. And that's our challenge. And trust me, the old Adam clings to all of those exterior labels as if that's what defines you. But who we are in Christ is what's central individually to the members as well as collectively to the body. One of the things that I think is easy to overlook, but it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the book of Revelation, and that is the beauty of the diversity of the body of Christ. In the same way that we saw in the seven letters to the seven churches, the range of, of levels of maturity and grasp of the gospel, so it is culturally and ethnically within the body of Christ. We are all over the place in places where you would not conceive someone is calling on the name of Christ. It could be the outskirts of India or hidden away in a secret church in China, or in some outpost in, in Australia, or in the most remote village of Africa, someone is calling on the name of Christ. And whoever calls on the name of Christ, they are his, and they are sealed. So we see this diversity Disciples from all nations being made one body in Christ, speaking one truth. But here's the third thing. In verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7, they are described as being dressed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, of course, the palm branches gives us images of Palm Sunday when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, and people were waving palm branches, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The white robes are explained for us in verse 14. Uh, in verse 14, it says that um, when the question is raised, who are these 
um, this this number, and it says, or who are those whose uh, whose robes have been made white? And the answer is that their robe, they are the ones who have um, have been washed. Their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So suffice it to say that the white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb corresponds to the sealing and the writing of the names, uh, the name of God the Father and of the Lamb on the foreheads of the 144,000. And we pointed out uh, last, last week that the sealing, the outward sealing of the people of God is symbolic of the inward sealing of the Holy Spirit. So whether it's white robes, which is, again, symbol, symbolic, we don't, we're not going to have white robes, that misses the point. The point that is being made is that those who are dressed externally in garments that are white, the reason they are white is, be, it, is because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So that's an outward symbol that corresponds to the outward symbol of the, the names of the Father and of the Lamb on the foreheads of the 144,000, which corresponds to the reality of the indwelling of the Spirit. And so what that simply means is that those, that number who cannot be numbered, made up of all of these tribes, are the ones who by faith are connected to the redeeming, purifying blood of the Lamb. We have not physically taken robes and washed them in the blood of the Lamb. But that, wash, that, that white washed robe is symbolic of a soul that has been purified by the precious shed blood of the Lamb. The fourth thing that we see is in verses 13 and 14. And it goes back to the question of who are these who are clothed in white robes? And there's a twofold answer. One, and this is critical, they are those who have come out of, or you could say through, the great tribulation. So if we haven't been clear up to this point, this should really drive it home, that Christians will go through tribulation. And the ones who go through the tribulation have endured it, because they have been sealed by the Spirit, and even if they have experienced the loss of life, they have been preserved by the Lamb. So the, the hunt, this, this, this number who can't be numbered are those who have come through the Great Tribulation. The B part of it, which we've already seen, but it's, it, it's, it still bears repeating. Not only have they come through the Great Tribulation, but their robes are made white by the blood of the Lamb, indicating that those who go through this period of tribulation are genuine believers, indwelt by the Spirit, confessing by faith that Christ has lived for their righteousness and died for their sins. 
this is taking us to the final scene because what John does, and we'll see this in a moment, is he goes forward and he gives us a glimpse into the consummation of all things. But before he shows us that final celebration, what he reminds us of is the fact that those who belong to God have been purified by the Lamb, which is another way of saying what, what Paul says in Philippians, that they don't have a righteousness of their own because they are covered by the righteousness of another. And the righteousness that, that has covered them is the one who has shed his blood on their behalf. So the great number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation have been brought to saving faith in Christ because as Jesus gave the commission, he has sent his disciples into the uttermost parts of the world to preach the foolishness of the gospel, that those who have ears to hear would hear their condemnation in the law and they would hear their pardon in the gospel. And everyone who believes is purged. And everyone who is purged will persevere even through the tribulation. So the two parts of the answer, who are these who are clothed in white and where have they come from? They are those who have been, who have come through the tribulation, whose robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. That's an interesting imagery, the idea that blood washes and purifies. Anyone who does laundry knows that that's the reverse. You wash things that have blood in them so the blood comes out. And the mystery of the gospel is that we are actually made righteous by something that ordinarily, just looking at it, it doesn't, it's, it's got no cleansing, cleansing agency or power that we can see. But the way that God has structured our salvation, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the life of the spotless Lamb of God is transferred to us because of the blood that he shed on our behalf. We're more than 144,000. We are a number that can't be numbered. And we come from every tribe, tongue, and nation as we have been brought into fellowship and union with the cross of Christ. And we are the ones who come through the tribulation. Some have been martyred, and some have lost their lives, and some are yet to lose their lives, as Jesus warns one of the churches. Some of you are about to be thrown in jail, but that's okay, because that which has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb is secure by the Lamb. But that brings us to the fifth and final part here, because in verse 10, this multitude is described as crying out, salvation belongs to our God and he who sits or who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verses 15 and 17, wonderful portrayal here because it's at this point that John is given a glimpse of the consummation of the redemption of God's people. 
Now, one of the, the reasons this is presented here, and, and by the way, it sh I should point out, this is one of the many reasons we cannot read Revelation in a linear fashion. What John is showing us here in chapter 7 is actually repeated in chapter 21 and 22 at the end of the book itself. Because what he has given is a glimpse of the consummation of the redemption of God's people. So he's really shown the end. And this is not a matter of, okay, this is going to happen and then this. No, he has, he has shown the end. Now remember last week we said one of the reasons for these interval visions is to reaffirm the security of God's people and secondly to kind of build a sense of drama for the end. So the end that John sees, which will be repeated elsewhere, is this, and it's wonderful the way it's expressed, almost in poetic terms. So after one of the angels tells him that these are those who have come through the tribulation and they have had their robes washed or made white, uh, wash, or they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then he says this, therefore, notice the language here, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now pause there for a moment, because there's two ways we need to see this. We just read from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that we are being made to be the dwelling place of God. So there's the already and the not yet. We are already being built into holy habitation on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So John or, or Paul sees us as being the dwelling place of God. Now John describes it in really in eschatological terms. And so he's pointing, at, he's pointing to it, yes, that is our reality every time the people of God gather. In fact, whether we gather or not, we are the dwelling place of God. That's what the indwelling Holy Spirit affirms to us, that we are the purchased possession of Christ, and we belong to God, and we are the living stones of the temple of God. But here, John takes it further. Because he's not talking about the church in struggle or, or uh, in trial or travail. What John is seeing is the consummation, the end. And the end of our struggle is that what we are symbolically and spiritually, we will be actually. So we will, and so the way he sees the people of God as being before the throne of God and worshiping, dwelling in his temple. It's a beautiful image towards the end of uh, the book of Revelation where John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he speaks in, in a sense where there's this unbroken harmony and fellowship between heaven and earth. And that's a glimpse of what he gets here. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, listen to this, will shelter them with his presence. Another image that John sees towards the end of the book is that in this new Jerusalem, there will be no sun and there will be no moon, because the glory of the Lamb will be their light. 
And so they will be sheltered by his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Many of the things that John says here, he will repeat later. But he's affirming this to a people who are in the midst of trials, who are in the midst of tribulation. And he's reminding them that their suffering is not in vain. Remember the cry of the martyrs, how long, O Lord, before you take vengeance and you, you, you vindicate our suffering? And what he reminds them over and over again, in spite of what has already been unveiled in the first six seals, with those who will come to conquer and, and to, to wreak havoc in warfare, the struggles and the, the, the tumults that you will experience socially, all of the devastations that we experience in the cosmic order, we are still the purchased possession of the Lamb. And he who will be our shepherd in the end is our shepherd right now. And there are tears to be cried. It doesn't make sense for him to wipe tears that don't exist the reason he will have tears to wipe is because we will have tears to cry. But because we shed tears as we serve him, it does not mean that he will not nurture us. Remember, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and we are being built into a holy habitation, the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. And there is nothing that will be experienced in the trumpets, in the seals, or in the bowls of wrath. There will be nothing that will be experienced in the cosmic order or in our social disorder that will disrupt anything that we have that has been purchased by the Lamb. He is our shepherd, and he guides us. And he's with us. And he will take us through the tribulation. And it will be difficult at times. But he is with us. And his rod and his staff, they will comfort us. Who will be able to stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? That's the greater question. We can't be distracted or discouraged by the things that lead up to the day of wrath. Because ultimately the day of wrath is the day of vindication for those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Who will be able to stand? Those who are sealed. And those who are sealed are those whose robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. I pray that this word is a reminder that the cross that brings about the blood of the Lamb is the filter through which 
we are to bring all of our experiences. That is the means of our sanctification. And it is the means through which we are to interpret and engage everything else in our horizontal experiences. The cross of the Lamb is the place where the wrath of the Father has been poured out. And those who have received the wrath as well as the grace of the Father in the Lamb will be spared the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Father has been poured on the Lamb. In the final consummation, the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out on the rest of the created order. But those who have borne the wrath of the Father through the Lamb will be able to stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for life in him. We thank you for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. We pray, Father, that as we have attempted to explain and open up your word for your people, that you would strengthen your people to hear your words of comfort and that you would feed them anew with the revelation of the sacrifice lamb that gives them security in the day of wrath. There are things that are taking place that have already been set forth through the seals that have been opened that we don't fully understand on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. But the whole of our salvation rests in what has been accomplished by your Son. Give us that assurance as we go from day to day so that we as those, as we will be in the final day, day and night giving praises to you, let it be our goal day by day to give honor to you and to glorify you in all of our going and all of our doing and all of our coming, that our speech would be seasoned by the knowledge of your grace that our affections would be filtered through your grace, that we would be comforted in our times of struggle and travail, that we know that we belong to you because he who died in our place is now seated at your right hand in our place. Thank you for this comfort. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right.